with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Kos The Brief our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissa. I'm here with co-host Carrie Alavelt. We are, Carrie, today we're going to be talking to two experts from Daily Coast, because we got some of the best experts. We're going to be talking about the Senate, how things are shaking out with Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It seems that things have been stuck for half a year, if not longer, uh, because of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that with Joe McCarter. She's a senior, uh, she's a senior writer at Daily Coast. She is pretty much like an authority in all things having to do with the Senate. We're also going to be talking to Stephen Wolf. He is from Daily Coast Elections. We're going to be talking about the redistricting process. We keep talking about we're not going to know what 2022 looks like until we have districts. Well, we have districts in a lot of states, so we're going to sort of get a progress report on just how things are looking for Democrats as states redraw their congressional boundaries. Stephen Wolf is a nationally recognized expert on redistricting. In fact, if you were to look at Maryland's districts today, those were actually written by Stephen Wolf. That's how much of an expert he is. He actually has had a hand in writing some of the nation's congressional maps. So great show. Now, Gary... We've been talking about states and grassroots organizations and building infrastructure. And uh, we're taking a pause this week and next because those same groups are actually working on these elections. And most of those states have these off-year municipal elections, mayorships, county boards, judicial elections. So we're going to let them do their thing. And then we're going to pick up after the election. Right. And those and those organizations are bare bones organizations. They don't have any fat. So when it comes down to crunch time for the elections, they can't afford to, like, have their executive director take an hour out and spend you know time with us, which we find very valuable. But like, isn't necessarily the best use of their time a couple of weeks before elections. So, um, you know, that it just to just to underscore how important those groups are and and how little you know sort of uh, leeway they have to sort of play around they don't have extra people they don't have dedicated communications people who just do that 100 percent of the time most of them etc so yeah and this sort of kind of comes back to the idea that contributing to those organizations doing on the ground organizing is the best money you will ever spend because all that money goes into getting people activated, registered to vote, turn out to vote, informed. It literally is the best. And, and Carrie, we've done, we've done already. If anybody's interested, you can go into our archives. We feature organizations in, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Virginia. And I'm going to really sort of, all of those states have municipal elections, important ones coming up. Uh, Virginia's obviously the governorship. That's a really, really, really big one. And, and anybody that can help out with that election should help out with that election. I'm going to assume everybody listening and watching this already um, and are in Virginia already, obviously. <laughs> they already voted or registered to vote. This is about taking that extra step and getting people you may know in Virginia, reminding them they may not be as attuned 
politically. So it would be great if you could remind your Virginia friends and family to turn out and vote. Pennsylvania has a Supreme Court justice seat that is absolutely critical. Why is it critical? Because we know that Republicans will do shenanigans in 2024 presidential election. We need a Supreme Court that will be fair and not beholden to whatever Trumpy whims may emerge out of this next presidential election. We need those Supreme Courts. Pennsylvania, obviously, a critical state for both sides. So we need to make sure we have a fair Supreme Court. And anywhere you are, municipal elections are really, really important. So even if we haven't featured your state, there's organizations doing great organizing on the ground in your state, in your backyard. Really urge you to find out who they are and to join their email list, contribute to them, volunteer for them, because they are, again, the best bang for the buck politically you can ever donate to. True. Carrie's just speechless. <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to add. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I was sick for a few of those episodes, so I'm not as like well versed on them as you are. But I know the Pennsylvania episode we did was great. So, uh, and not because of not because I was back, but because uh, you know the our our interviewee was wonderful. So. Anyway, but yeah, uh, they, yeah, they've all they've all been great. So it's just a reminder. If you haven't seen those episodes, I highly encourage you to to go back and check those out. The, these uh, on the ground organizers are just fantastic people. No matter where you go, if you dedicated your life to getting people involved in politics, you're going to be a pretty cool person already. And so they're they're incredibly charismatic. They're funny. They're engaging, and they're so passionate about what they're doing. So those episodes have been an absolute joy to do, and I can't wait to pick up the the series after this uh, after this um, election season or election weeks, so that we can uh, spotlight other amazing organizations doing this work on the ground. But Carrie, we can we can get this show started. So actually, I think this is a good time to bring on Jomna Carter. She's a senior writer at Daily Coast specializing on lots of things, but one of them being Congress. And Joan, last time we talked, you sort of laid out, this was a, maybe a couple of months ago, it was before you went on vacation, because you bailed right after our, our <laughs> yeah, episode. you bailed. And, and yeah. Carrie, I think it was Carrie who actually picked up the, the beat for, for those weeks. But it was a very ambitious uh, agenda. It had, um, obviously, the Build Back Better, Biden's sort of signature human capital, um, what do you want, infrastructure bill. There was the bipartisan infrastructure bill that had passed, but progressives are holding up uh, in order to get those sort of a-hole Democrats to go along and, and vote for Build Back Better. There was voting reform. There was the uh, debt limit. I mean, there's a lot of things. And so we know the debt limit Gover- was... Government funding. Government yeah. funding. Government funding, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's just sort of like, well, where are we now? But, you know, just trying to like narrow this down a little bit so it's not too broad of a question because it doesn't feel like much has happened since we talked. And obviously there was a short-term extension on the debt limit. And that's that's a one-off because there's no way I think Republicans are going to allow a second one, mm-hmm. period. That's been kicked off till when? December 3rd. Okay, so... That's the same deadline for government funding. Okay, I haven't even heard anything about government funding. Maybe yeah. you're more you're more abreast on that. But the focus right now seems to be on the Build Back Better. Mm-hmm. And Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona are holding that up. Manchin at least has some concrete objections. Cinema seems to be... keep moving 
they're, they're so, concrete, but they're changeable. So, so let's let's talk Play-Doh? about where <laughs> let's talk about where Build Back Better is today. Uh, well, as of right now, I just saw news that maybe the Senate thinks they have a deal with Manchin on the climate provisions. But um, since he changes his mind every other day, I don't know that we can really believe that so far because this bill doesn't just have the family stuff, the economic stuff, it also has climate change. That's that's one of the areas where Manchin has been causing a lot of trouble. Yeah, so let's step back. The original proposal was $3.5 trillion. Well, original, original, it was $6 trillion. Okay. I mean, if you really want to start from the beginning, and that was yeah, that was almost enough to deal with what we actually have to face. But then they they argued it down to three and a half trillion, and, and now they Manchin, they single. meaning Sanders, House leadership, okay. Schumer, the White House. Then Mansion popped up with and apparently signed a piece of paper that Chuck Schumer also saw and signed back in August saying, well, I'm a lot more comfortable with $1.5 trillion. And we didn't find that out until a few weeks ago. And there and was then, no Bernie Sanders magical contract with Chuck Schumer saying $6 trillion. Yeah, no. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Next time, Bernie, get that. <laughs> get that. <get>, <laughs> um, now Manchin is, you know, somebody will say, well, we met with him and he's willing to go up to 1.75, maybe 1.9. And Manchin keeps coming out the next day saying, nope, nope, 1.5, 1.5, that's all. And We don't the, know what he's saying behind closed doors. Uh, okay. Is the 1.5 programs he wants to cut, or is it just a magical 1.5 That's number? That's just a magical number that he has in his head, except that there are things that he doesn't want. He doesn't want just anybody getting the full child tax credit. He doesn't want 2 million people in non-Medicaid expansion states to have access to Medicaid. He doesn't really want seniors to get vision dental hearing benefits. I mean, there's stuff that he's saying, no, 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 this is entitlement society kind of stuff, and I don't like it. We're going to have to limit it. Um, And he also doesn't want the climate stuff. Well, I was just going to say, I saw a great headline that sort of was talking about how no one's more entitled. I don't remember the exact headline, but no one's lived a more entitled life than Joe Manchin. Seriously. I just, I love the play on entitlement versus, you know, being entitled because you just live a, you know, luxurious life. So everything's great. You know, you're making a lot of money. So, hey. So I don't know what these people are complaining about. Exactly. Go go get a job, get healthcare. As you if know, that can would I answer the problem? Can I just when we had you on before though, we were working with I think the three point five trillion dollar mm-hmm. number, right? Mm-hmm. And but we also like we didn't have any idea what the objections were. Like we didn't have I feel like we are further along and closer, even though this process has been maddening, right? I feel mm-hmm. like we're, we've slowly, surely started to zero in on exactly what provisions are problematic and much closer to exactly mm-hmm. what a final number might be. So, yeah. so this process has been maddening to, and, and more maddening probably to you, Joan McCarter, than, than almost anybody. But I do think, I, I, aren't we closer to 
getting, you know, to where I like, I feel like I can almost see a path now. Whereas before I just didn't, I just didn't, it was so unclear to me what the path was. Possibly. And again, you're dealing with Joe Manchin who will say out loud what he does and doesn't like, but also Kirsten Cinema, who maybe will say it to the president maybe we'll say it to a fellow senator, maybe not. It won't be public. You never know when cinema is going to come up with some other thing she doesn't like. So, you know, I'm I'm ready at any point for either of them to pull the rug out from under us. Even though it looks like it's close and Hoyer's out in the house saying, oh, yeah, yeah, hours away, hours away. I don't think we're hours away. I think there's so- still going to be stuff cropping up. You know, you bring up cinema, and that's a great point. She's been, she's been, I think, even more frustrating. One, because she represents a a purple state. She's not Joe Manchin, but Joe Manchin. You know, we can get so angry, at Joe Manchin. Donald Trump won the state by forty points. It was mm-hmm. like a seventy thirty state. And as you know, stupid as some of his objections seem to be politically, fact is he got reelected multiple times in a 40 point Trump state. Like he's not politically stupid. Um, So I'm willing to give him some benefit of the doubt. I mean, I'm still pissed and angry and I'm willing to give him, Kirsten Sinema doesn't get that. She does not get that. Joe Biden won that state. The energy in that state is from progressive Democrats. That's what got her elected. There's no moderate in Arizona. And um, she's not representing her state. Mark Kelly, who does represent her state, has raised more money. His his poll numbers are uh, much, much higher. Cinema right now is the nation's most unpopular senator. Raised uh, far more money, eight million dollars more money in the third quarter than she did. Yeah, what are the absolute? She raised like one point five, and he raised like it wasn't quite eight million. It wasn't quite so. It was more like she he raised like six million dollars more than she did. I mean, that's a lot of like she. Well, and a lot of her money was pack. A lot of her money was pack. She sold her soul. Right. Yeah. She was like, oh, GOP donors. Oh, yep. big, you know, lobbyists for big pharma, things like that. I'm going to sell my soul and come away with a little over a million dollars while Mark Kelly raises um, with a lot more small dollar grassroots push closer to, you know, closer to over seven million dollars. I mean, yeah. it, it is like that. There's I nothing mean, rational about her behavior is what it yeah. is. And and objectively, you look at the poll numbers, the fundraising, nothing validates her behavior. So, But I want to get it back in the context of, of the Senate then. Over the weekend, she finally apparently spoke up on some of her objections, and one of them mm-hmm. was on taxation. And she actually had a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So can you explain so her good that's, idea? That's, that's harder to implement um, because it's – it's tricky. Uh, the billionaire tax, which yeah, so yes, explain what that great what, idea tax billionaires finally on the wealth that they hold. That's a key. Not on that's income a because not, they don't not make when, money. Not when they sell things. Not transaction taxes. Just never on the wealth that they hold, which they never. Yeah, they don't give it up. They don't pay they taxes don't, on it because they don't only, give it up. They just yeah, borrow not, against it, exactly. and that's how they live like billionaires. Exactly. You don't pay taxes on stuff that you borrow off. They might even be deducting the interest on that, depending on yeah. how they, depending on how they set that up. So they never sell their stocks. They don't need to. They borrow against it. They mm-hmm. live off of that, and then they can pay that off of you know as the stocks appreciate. I mean, 
this is how they live their life. They don't pay taxes. So this would tax wealth. Yes. Which is sort of what Elizabeth Warren wanted to do when she ran for president. This yeah. came from Kirsten Cinema. So what's the problem then? The problem is that it's kind of complicated to draft. And you've got Richie Neal in the House at Ways and Means who's drafted the tax plan that he likes and that he wants. And he doesn't really want to swap it out with what Wyden, the Senate finance chair, Ron Wyden from Oregon, what he's coming up with. Now, Wyden and Warren have worked a little bit on, on this in the past. They don't have a full bill yet. They hadn't had it. What they had originally in repealing some of the Trump tax cuts was there. It was finished. It was easy. It was clear. Cinema said, no, can't do that. So throwing a real spanner into the works and just making them go back and, and recreate that wheel. That's the biggest problem, really, I think, is just in timing. Um, Manchin has signed off on it. If they can get it done, if they can get Richard Neal along, and I think Pelosi can probably whip him into shape and make him do it. Mostly is just that it's really been another thing grinding the wheels down. Richie, Richie Neal's provisions, the way he drafted that tax plan, that's dead on arrival with cinema. So it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, he thinks it's a better way to do it. He wanted to do the corporate income tax raise or, or roll back the Trump tax cuts on, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on corporations and then mm-hmm. also roll back some of the tax cuts on wealthy individuals uh, making $400,000, but more, more than $400,000. Uh, but that's, that's DOA with cinema. Yeah. So it kind of doesn't, I mean, you know, he can say, well, this is a b- better provision. I like it more. I don't like the wealth tax. And it kind of doesn't matter. If it doesn't pass the Senate, it doesn't pass the Senate. No. Now, you know, we're talking about all these people arguing, and I just want to kind of remind everybody that they're all Democrats. Right. This is even negotiations <laughs> with the Republicans. Yep. This is all Democrats. And Cinema could have mentioned this, you know, back in March. Like, yep. I don't know what she was waiting for. Yeah, well, like, now she's going to yeah. come in over the weekend and, and again, slow stuff down. And we're seeing it's affecting. And, and this is this is what the problem is, I think. And this is where I, I worry about this. It's it's the whack-a-mole game we have with matching and cinema. Mansion comes up with something, they whack it down, they think that they come up with a compromise, cinema pops up with something else, some other problem she's got. They go off and deal with that while Mansion's cooking up five other things that he has a problem with. So it's always trying to balance the two of these and answer their objections. And it just, it feels like to me this has been a delaying game. Push this off as long as they possibly can so that eventually the House just has to vote on their stupid BIF, on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Well, it's a BIB. I like to call it BIF because it's stupider. <laughs> um, so that they have to vote on the Mansion Cinema bill that passed the Senate. Force that down, House progressives' throats, make them pass it, and then let Build Back Better fade away. I, that's That's what it feels like to me they're trying to do. Um, There is a semi-deadline here of October 31st for the Highway Trust Fund. They've extended that now a couple of times. It expires on October 31st. So they're using that as a deadline for getting the bipartisan bill passed. But it's an easy thing to extend. They extend it all of the time. So that's a false deadline. And Pramila Jayapal has already said, Pramila Jayapal has already said, it's no big deal. Like, we can get past this. There are other reasons 
to want to to want to nail this down before i mean what you know well, of yes, course, sir. i mean because we do have to immediately turn to the debt ceiling government funding where the one well, also, thing is is one thing i want people to keep an eye on and again this is democrats in control that 24 billion more that they have authorized for pentagon spending than what the pentagon actually asked for just just think about this for this one year Fiscal year 2022, Congress is going to give the Pentagon $24 billion more than it asked for while it's fighting over whether or not grandma can have dental care. Yeah, that's the um, military-industrial complex teeth, in action. And what happens is that the defense contractors have put subcontractors in all the districts, yeah. uh, particularly anybody that's in the defense uh, subcommittee, and uh, so it's just there... something to keep in mind, though, when you hear yeah. them talking about what we can and can't afford. Oh, it's right. absolutely that's, infuriating. That's... How much, you know, Carrie, you brought up uh, Pramila Jayapal. She is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, I don't think Joe Manchin knows what it's like to actually go up against mm-hmm. a progressive caucus that is actually flexing its muscle. It historically I don't think Nancy has... Pelosi does either. It's historically <laughs> been a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And historically, they say we got to get what we can, you know, don't stand in the way. And we're just going to we're going to roll over for the Joe Mansions. And in the past, it was Joe Lieberman or Ben Nelson or and Max Baucus, yeah. whatever the, the conser- conservative Democrats were. And so the, the progressives would just roll over and they're not rolling over. Do you have any yeah. insight into what's going on over there? No, other than Jayapal is really organized and she's good and she's tough. Um, she has very much tightened up the CPC. It used to be sort of looked at even among members as a social club. And she's oh, forcing them to fun. pay their dues. She, she's increased membership by like 20 members from 70 some to 94. Um, she's making them pay their dues. She's making them go to meetings. And one of the things that's helped too is that they decided to have a single director and it is her. So no more co-directors who are, you know, stepping all over each other, trying to figure out what to put in the press release. It's just her. So that helps a lot. And she's also smart, really smart. Right. And they end up not just firing off press releases and stepping on each other's toe all the time. Yeah. Um, I do want to mention, too, that, that that a couple other reasons that Democrats would like to nail down something is that Biden's going to this uh, climate right. summit in Glasgow, right? And he wants to have something to show when he's trying to convince other nations that they need to do something about climate change. He wants to be able to say, here's the goods we're doing in the U.S. And the other thing is the Virginia elections. I mean, you know, Terry McAuliffe would very badly like to see some things passed before. uh, And it may not make the difference, but, you know, it might. And I I don't know that there are a lot of voters in Virginia who are saying, well, I really want this bipartisan infrastructure bill to pass before I vote for Terry McAuliffe. But it does show momentum. It does show Democrats getting things done. All it all it does is turn around, start to turn around that narrative that's been, you know, portrayed for months by the Washington media that Democrats aren't getting anything done, that Biden's agenda is stalling, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. 
Can you, um, we're getting close to, to time, so, I, um, but I'm really curious about these climate provisions because Joe Manchin represents a coal state and mm-hmm. he himself has interest in, in the coal industry. So there's sort of a big mm-hmm. conflict of interest and he's been very opposed yes, to these climate change provisions. I actually thought they were gone. I thought they were history, but they're hanging on. And any insight into what's going on there? They're hanging on because he's, they're keeping him by offering carrots instead of sticks. By and, and again, this makes it pretty hard to say we can't afford to give Medicaid to 2 million people when you're saying, oh, well, let's just give utilities more federal money for taking longer to switch from fossil fuel generation of electricity to clean generation of electricity. So they're keeping them in there, but they're doing it by giving industries money rather really than saying this is what you have to achieve by this date. Um, right now, I, I just just before we came on, I saw a report in The Hill that maybe Mansion is moving a little bit on methane. There were going to be methane fees included in this as a way to try to stop those emissions from happening and and as, as I, I don't know all the details. those emissions yes okay and as of right now maybe he's spending on that i'm not going to hold my breath i just saw that story so so methane and electricity generation those were the two big things that biden was going to take with him to glasgow to say we're going to cut emissions in the united states 50 percent by 2030 and how he gets there without these provisions i'm not sure so, so just for just a little inside, you know, stuff from Daily Coast Slack. I can't tell you how often Jones partway through a piece, then we get a new tweet <laughs> from someone saying Mansion's done this or Cinema's done that or blah, and and then you just see Joan go rewriting click. And so it's <laughs> like so frustrating to be trying yeah. to like break this down for people. So when you read your Joe McCarthy. Carter posts out this mess, right? Appreciate the fact that she is deciphering for you every little tidbit that comes through. Sometimes I hate that they invented Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta wait for that press release to come across once a day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As opposed to the, not only, not only relentless stream of information, but also contradictory. Oh, there goes those five paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) What? So a lot of the talk right now is that they're close to a framework, and I'm using scare quotes yeah. around the word framework. What the heck is a framework? A framework is basically numbers attached to the provisions. What I see, I think. I don't know what Joe Manchin calls a framework. I have no idea what Kirsten Cinema calls anything. So what she thinks of as a framework, I don't know. But But that's my idea. This is the amount of money. We can put toward this, and this is how long this program can last. For example, they are talking about having the child tax credits extend for only one year. They wanted to have four originally, now they're saying one year. And whether or not there are going to be work requirements attached to that or an income cap. So, you know, whether it will be means tested. So I think that's probably the framework. Um, Right now, Jayapal is saying, if we have that framework and if we have cinema and mansion making an ironclad agreement to Biden, then we will go ahead and pass the bib, the bipartisan bill. Yeah. I kind of wish she hadn't done that. 
I kind of wish she was holding out and saying, yeah, no, the Senate has to pass Build Back Better, and then we pass infrastructure. But I can see why she's, you know, needing to bend a little bit just to stay in the negotiations. So, you know, Joe Manchin said one thing that I actually thought was kind of legit, right? He was saying, I'm under a lot of pressure from Democrats. They want something I'm not willing to give them. Um, If this is as popular as they think it is, then they can win next year's elections and then have a bigger majority. And then it doesn't matter what I think they can get it passed. Exactly. And that's what 2022 has to be. But I mean, it's stupid that one of our major narratives going into 2022 is making two Democratic senators irrelevant. But that's what we have. Yeah. Joe McCutter, I think that's all the time we have right now. We're going to actually shift into a conversation about 2022 with our colleague, Stephen Wolf. But Joe, thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to have to pull you back in to get another update because we didn't even talk about the voting reform bill and the debt limit and the government funding. And I don't even remember what yeah, else. Yeah, the thing is, it never ends. So, you know, we always have the chance. <laughs> it would be nice if we could see some real quick progress, given that we have a majority uh, people don't understand there's a thing called the filibuster. It just doesn't really compute. doesn't make yeah. sense because it's stupid. And yeah. it makes Democrats look like like we can't run a government. And it's, it's, yep. it's, yeah, it's a problem. But thank you so much for all the work you do. Thank you so much for uh, your coverage. Everybody, uh, read Joe McCarter to really understand what's happening in the Senate and the House. Some of the best coverage around. So, Joan, ah, thank, thank you so you. much. See you next time. Bye, Joe. So, Carrie, let's just bring on Stephen Wolf. Um, right. I don't see any reason to, to, to delay on that. Stephen Wolf is a writer at Daily Coast Elections. He is one of the nation's foremost experts on redistricting. We're going to be talking about redistricting. That is the redrawing of U.S. House of Representatives seats across the country after the census. Uh, Stephen Wolf is um, not only is he an expert on it, he actually has had a hand drawing at least Maryland's district, uh, uh, Maryland's current map, the outgoing map. And I think you may have had your hand on some others. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marcos. Glad to be here. So uh, sort of the first question is getting, you know, we want to, I want to get a sense of what that big picture is looking like, because before, after the 2020 elections, where we didn't pick up some key state legislative chambers like in texas the narrative was like damn this was our last chance to really to uh to to pick up some ability some leverage some decision making process in some of these new maps we didn't get that done in 2020 and so we were going to get hit because republicans were more likely to drop more seats than Democrats. So it was a very doom and gloom sort of scenario. We're about, what, maybe halfway through the the drawing of districts right now, statewide. What's your sense of how things are going so far? Is it as bad as we feared, or is it turning out differently? Uh, It's actually still a little early uh, in the process. Only about six states have completed their congressional and legislative redistricting. Many more are currently uh, in the process of drawing new lines uh, but there's still quite a ways to go, and it could be a few more months before we have a, a, a good sense of how most of the country is going to turn out in redistricting. Uh, that said, though, you know, because of the results of the elections last decade, we know that Republicans are going to be able to draw uh, congressional districts in roughly four or five out of every 10 districts, uh, whereas Democrats are going to be limited to drawing uh, only about two out of every 10 districts. So 
Republicans have about a two to three to one advantage over Democrats. Uh, and, and that's a pretty significant edge that will allow them just through the control of the district lines to ensure that they are favored uh, to retake the House next year. Now, of course, 2010 was also a really bad election for Democrats, and that that uh, resulted in Republicans drawing even more of the country. They drew about half of the districts to only Democrats controlling one-tenth of redistricting a decade ago. So things might not be quite as bad uh, this decade as they were last, but still, you know, while we haven't seen Republicans in states like Texas eliminated a bunch of Democratic districts, what they are doing is locking in all of the current districts they hold thanks to their existing gerrymander. They're making it harder for uh, Black, Latino, and Asian American voters to have uh, equal political clout, uh, even though they've accounted for the vast majority of the population growth in Texas over the last decade. Uh, so what we're really seeing is Republicans locking down the advantage they already have, uh, and, and Democrats are struggling to make it up. But w- one thing about Texas, if, if I understand correctly, is that it didn't it, they didn't come out quite as aggressively as some thought the GOP might. In other words, it, some thought, well, maybe they'll squeeze an extra, I don't know, what, two or three seats out of this. And they took a slightly more conservative route, from what I understand. It doesn't mean that it's fair. It doesn't mean that it doesn't suppress or, or you know, unfairly discriminate against people of color, voters in, in metro areas. But how many seats did they end up gaining um, in, in, in Texas? So Texas is, is an understatement to say it's very complicated. Um, you know, one thing about Texas is that the demographics are rapidly changing and its politics are rapidly changing. It's going from a solidly red state to a swing state. And if things continue at their current rate, you know, Democrats just start winning statewide elections at some point. And then now you notice that the, the map itself does not try to, to ring out every single Republican seat it, it possibly could. But that's because the map makers were trying to anticipate a decade's worth of future demographic change. And they are trying to maximize the number of seats they can win over the long term and not just in the short term. So what that involved was they are taking uh, these fast growing suburban areas where Democrats have improved considerably during the Trump era. And they are splitting them apart. They're uh, uh, connecting them with heavily Republican white rural areas further out from the metro areas. And they're trying to uh, roll the clock back on demographic change. So in practice, what this has looked like is uh, the exact stat is 95% of Texas population growth over the last decade was from people of color. But instead of drawing any new uh, districts for uh, voters to elect candidates of color, what they're doing is making two existing heavily Latino districts even whiter and more conservative. And Republicans already hold one of these thanks to their existing gerrymander. And they they're look like they're on track to have a good chance to flip the second one that they're targeting because of their new gerrymander. How many, how many more? I, I'm trying to get a number. So, so what does that mean in terms of, you know, what kind of districts, how many district, how many congressional districts they end up with that they think are going to be GOP districts versus Repu- versus Democratic districts? Right. So Republicans drew this map. They're in, they're intending to be uh, when it, they're intending to win in 25 out of the 38 districts. So leaving Democrats with just 13 districts. Uh, and Texas has gained uh, two seats um, from the 2020 census reapportionment, which moves seats across the states. 
and Republicans have drawn the map so that Democrats and Republicans will split each of those two new districts. And Republicans are trying to flip one existing Democratic district in South Texas that's heavily Latino. I see. So, so they're tr- so, so they're trying to they're trying to gain. Two, they hope to gain two seats to the Democrats' one seat gain. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It's interesting that they're cutting them up, cutting up um, suburban areas since that used to be such a sort of bedrock base of support for them. How much? One of the sort of big surprises of the census was a bit of the hollowing out of rural areas like rural America is truly sort of withering. And and there was a lot of talk when, when those numbers came out that this might help blunt the ability of Republicans to heavily gerrymander since there's so there's fewer people living in those empty cow country parts of America. Do you think that had an impact in Texas and the ability of the Republicans to wring out more seats? Yeah, you know, I I think it's part of the, you know, Republicans are responding to demographic changes if their their way of life is under threat. And because of that, they're going to ever greater extremes to undermine fair elections. And when they see that the rural population of the country is dwindling and the urban and suburban part is still growing, the country's growing more diverse, uh, they've gone to even greater extremes gerrymandering with this map. And one really uh, kind of ingeniously uh, evil thing that this map does is it takes all of these rural districts that are far and far away from these these big metropolitan areas. And what they have done is tried to not overly pack Republicans into their rural districts by carving off a little Democratic city here or there or a part of, or part of suburbs here and there and pairing them with these rural districts so that uh, I think all but one or two of the 38 districts in the new uh, Republican map is either a Democratic district or it's a Republican district that cracks an urban or suburban area. Interesting. So uh, Texas, I mean, the, the fear that Republicans would be able to squeeze out three, four seats out of Texas, not happening. What they've done is they've shored things up uh, moving forward. Right now, Democrats have control of the House. If we were to see this more nationwide, we'd actually be in a lot better place than we thought we would be. Now, I know I've seen some early um, sort of, I don't know if it was an official map or somebody, you know, drawing a potential map in New York that squeezed out a bunch of extra Democratic seats. I know they're trying to do that in Illinois, I believe, in a in a very funky <laughs> gerrymander of our mm-hmm. own uh, in Illinois. Do Democrats have the ability to offset any of these, you know, we may not be – you know, as lucky as we maybe I don't know if lucky is the word in Texas, but not as you know, they're not being as aggressive trying to get new seats. Can we offset that with the states that we do control? Well, here's the problem with that is that, you know, after the 2020 elections, Democrats only have a five seat majority in the House. And that's a really small margin for error. So even if Democrats in New York are getting rid of these five Republican seats like they could and, and electing four more Democrats, uh, New York is losing a seat in reapportionment. You know, it's it's still not going to completely counterbalance all the Republican states such as Texas or Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio and Florida uh, that collectively have have at least twice as many districts as the states Democrats are trying to gerrymander. So Democrats only have a, a few big states such as Illinois and, and Texas that have a lot uh, sorry, Illinois and New York that have a lot of seats. And the other states they're controlling are states like Nevada or Oregon that do not have many districts uh, in, the, in their states. What about Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania was a aggressive Republican gerrymander in 2010. The I think the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw out that map. A new map was 
um, written. Now you have a deadlock. Now you have a deadlock. You have the governor who's uh, who's a Democrat and the legislature that is Republican. Is there a possibility we may be able to squeeze out seats there in a more fair map? Or is the court drawn map already a fair map? So the uh, Republican gerrymander you mentioned, Republicans passed that after 2010, but then Democrats took control of the state Supreme Court after the 2015 elections, and there was a lawsuit, and the court ultimately said that gerrymandering violates the state constitution. Uh, it struck down that map in 2018, and yes, it did draw a much fairer map. So in Pennsylvania, we're uh, looking more at, at the status quo prevailing. The court is uh, The state Supreme Court is most likely to end up drawing the map again, thanks to the Democratic governor vetoing a rep- any new Republican gerrymander. Uh, and because Pennsylvania is losing a congressional seat in reapportionment, it's dropping from 18 to 17 districts. Almost every single of the districts that remains will have to add new people. Uh, so what that means is there are a, are a handful of Democrats who currently hold swing districts, uh, some of which might have to become more conservative by adding more territory. So Democrats are, in all likelihood, looking at at least a one-seat loss in that state, uh, most likely Connor Lamb's district in suburban Pittsburgh. Uh, he is leaving it to run for Senate, and there's a good likelihood that the map is a, uh, a factor in that decision to leave. That district will have to become more conservative, most likely, and uh, Democrats will be hard-pressed to hold it in, in a midterm under a Democratic president. Can I uh, can I ask about a state like Michigan? And maybe this is too granular for where we are in the process, but you know, it, it the we obviously have a Democratic governor there, uh, Secretary of State, AG, etc. Uh, but then you have this entirely uh, Republican-led uh, legislature. However, there's a there's a nonpartisan uh, redistricting committee, right? So. I'm wondering, do we have any sense at this point of whether that might actually help Democrats at the state level in a state like Michigan, where where essentially like, you know, you've got an entire executive branch uh, dominated by Democrats, but you still have an a, a legislature that's dominated by Republicans. Yeah, so Michigan is one of the uh, most gerrymandered states in the country currently. Uh, after the 2010 census, Republicans drew the, the congressional and legislative maps. And if you look at the legislature and you count up all the votes for both parties running statewide, uh, Democratic candidates have actually won more votes than Republicans in four out of the last five elections since uh, the, the 2010 census. And Republicans have nevertheless won majorities in every single one of those elections because of how they've drawn the district lines. So voters finally got really fed up with this in 2018. They passed a ballot initiative. It creates an, a new independent redistricting commission that is currently in the process of drawing maps. Uh, they have unveiled a, a number of draft maps. They've held public hearings. They're, cur- they're uh, likely going to um, finish their work sometime in the next several weeks. And one really important thing that this, this Michigan reform did is it didn't just take line drawing away from the legislature and give it to an independent panel. It specifically directed that panel uh, to draw maps with certain criteria in mind, one of the most important of which is making sure that the maps actually treat both parties fairly uh, and saying, like, look, if your map has a number of seats that exceed the statewide uh, level of support that a party gets, uh, it's, it's too unbalanced and needs to be redrawn. So what that looks like in practice is we're likely going to see seats where 
Michigan is a swing state. So if it's a Republican favoring midterm, we might not retake the legislature uh, in the next election. But those those new district lines drawn by the commission in all likelihood should give Democrats a chance to regain power at the state legislative level uh, in in an election later this decade, maybe if there's another Democratic favoring wave like the 2018 midterms. So that that's an actual good point because we you know we talk about how Republicans control the redistricting process in a lot of these states, but you mentioned Ohio, Florida, North Carolina. These are already well, maybe not North Carolina because it, again, I think a court decision redrew those lines, right? But in Florida, in Ohio, those are already heavily gerrymandered pro Republican maps. How many how many more seats can they ring out? a map that is already as gerrymandered as Florida and Ohio are. Yeah. So Florida is actually the only one of that pair where Republicans are really looking at substantial gains. um, Given what we know today, the thing about Florida is that it's been the Republicans have controlled the state government there for a couple decades, but in 2010 voters passed a few ballot initiatives to try to reform redistricting. And what those initiatives did is it didn't create an independent commission, but it imposed uh, criteria that, that legislature, legislators had to follow when drawing new maps. So Republicans, after 2010, they passed new gerrymanders, voters sued. And in 2015, the state Supreme Court struck down those lines and drew, and, and there were new districts uh, drawn that were much fairer than what Republicans had originally drawn. Uh, but unfortunately, because Republicans won the governor's elections uh, in, in 2014 and 2018, uh, conservatives have now gained a majority on the state Supreme Court in Florida, and they're expected to let Republicans get away with a degree of gerrymandering again. So there are several Democratic-held seats in Florida uh, that Republicans could be about to target when they they end up drawing their new map. So, you know, big picture, uh, Republicans don't have that many targets in those big states. However, they do have these targets in some small states that uh, usually get overlooked, uh, Missouri is one where they could eliminate a currently Democratic district or Kansas, uh, and they could also uh, refuse to draw districts in states like Alabama, additional districts for black voters uh, in a state that they've heavily racially gerrymandered. So, you know, just because Republicans aren't able to ring out a lot more seats in Texas or, or Georgia, you know, doesn't mean that they aren't locking in the uh, an advantage in the House anyway. Well, let's return to New York, uh, just because that's a state where we could pick up the most, uh, from what I understand, uh, the most seats in terms of a gerrymander. And the New York governor has said that she'll be, you know, has indicated that she'll she's basically down with that. <laughs> it's not exactly what she said. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I'm down with that. That's what I want to hear some <laughs> uh, some some governor of a big state say anyway um so (laughs) but you know i mean that's a situation of course where democrats haven't had they they haven't had the majorities which most people think of new york as a democratic state but in the state senate they haven't had the majorities to follow through on on these redistricting efforts and now they do so do you think what what do you think they're going to get out of that do you have a sense of where they're going with it yeah, so in New York, uh, some of the maps that have been circulating online from uh, redistricting analysts uh, suggest that Democrats could eliminate. So, okay, so New York is losing a seat in reapportionment, uh, one district. And so uh, the maps that are circulating online show that Democrats could eliminate five Republican seats and gain four Democratic seats, or, or maybe uh, with a less aggressive map, uh, maybe it could be 
eliminating four Republicans and adding three Democrats or something like that. So that, that's still a pretty substantial gain for Democrats. Uh, you know, the, just the problem is New York is really the only state like that where they can they could gain a substantial number of seats. So uh, we're, we're getting close to uh, to time here. So I guess really curious with what you've seen so far and what you you know see coming down the pike. Are you comfortable making any sort of prediction of what the end result might look like, plus or minus uh, how many seats Republicans might end up getting via this process? I mean, it's, it's really just hard to say, especially at this this early point. And, you know, the big problem with uh, determining an election's outcome is, I'm sorry, the you know the problem with uh, with understanding what's going to happen in the next midterm is we're having redistricting take place at the same time as other factors are happening that are hurting Democrats' popularity. So, you know, what things might look like today could look very different uh, a year from now when we're actually heading into election day. Now, that being said, you know, we're not going to see Republicans gaining 10, 15 seats from redistricting alone, but because of how they've gerrymandered the existing districts, they've already gained uh, several at least, if not a dozen districts, just from their current gerrymanders. So when we go into next year's elections, you know, it's possible that the difference between the, the outgoing gerrymanders and the, and the new ones won't itself flip the House, but it's, it's also possible that the gerrymanders uh, could determine the majority. If not in the next election, then, then certainly it's possible in 2024. Well, on, on that on that note, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure that I understood what you said. So you're just you're saying that you're saying that it, it could the the gerrymanders from before and the new gerrymanders could more or less even out, and that would still be a, a net gain basically for uh, Republicans because the House is already so gerrymandered. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I understood what you were saying. And it's not the not it's not what you said. It's how I understood it. That's all. Actually, I do have one more question before we go. I think we have a little bit of time to do so. There's been a sort of real question. Carrie and I have been talking about this almost weekly. There's a real question whether Trump voters will turn out or not if Trump is not on the ballot. Uh, given that, you know, in 2018, Democratic wave in large part because Trump voters didn't turn out. 2020, it was a little different because Trump voters came out. How much of this of these maps, like let's say the Texas one, for example, how much of them presupposes that Trump turnout model? So basically, it's an assuming a 2018 baseline electorate or a 2020 baseline electorate. 2018 being no Trump voter, 2020 being Trump voters turnout. Do you get a sense of what they're looking at? Yeah, so these new Texas maps are uh, designed to withstand, you know, if we're going to stick with the wave metaphor of an election, they're kind of designed to withstand a tsunami. You know, they've drawn these districts that after the 2018 or 2020 election uh, drove a lot of changes in these urban areas. You had certain districts that Trump won by only a few percentage points. What they did was they took these districts that he narrowly won, jacked up the margins so that he might have won by 15 or 20 percentage points. And, and that's just too big to overcome, even if Trump voters don't turn out at, at quite as high of a rate as they did in the last election. Um, you know, that said, though, there are there are districts outside of Texas, you know, maybe more marginal seats uh, where turnout you know, could make the difference if it's already a close election. So I, this is, I think, an important sort of point to make that even if the map doesn't look like it's changed much, let's say Democrats survive, that one targeted district survives next year in Texas, and we have a net 
shift in zero seats in Texas, it still means that this is a very Republican favorable gerrymander because we came close to picking up what three of those Texas House seats this last year. I mean, it was there's like three of those districts that were very, very close. We don't have those pickup opportunities anymore, correct? That's right. There are there are practically no competitive districts under the new gerrymander. Whereas before, I think there were nine districts that Trump and Republicans have won by single digit margins uh, in 2020. So, you know, they've really kind of eliminated these competitive seats, protected all their existing incumbents and made it really, really hard for Democrats to come anywhere close to winning a majority of districts, even if they end up flipping the state at the statewide level. I, <laughs> I mean, we knew this, the news wasn't going to be great. Uh, I don't think I, it's a- I personally, I mean, I may be silver lining girl, but like, I think Texas deciding to, I mean, I heard someone say, if Democrats were in charge of Texas, this is what Democrats would have done. Instead of doing this like sort of short term thinking that we thought Republicans would do, where they would try to end up, you know, with a net gain of like three seats or something like that. They seem to have taken a more conservative route. And I actually I mean, I think for in the short term, this may end up being overall slightly better than what the doomsday predictions were going into these this redistricting efforts. So I, you know, I don't know. I haven't like looked state by state. I'm not that girl. But um, but I've just been it doesn't seem like. It could, I mean, there were there were all these predictions like, you know, the, the the house will be entirely flipped by the time they're done with redistricting. Maybe and maybe it won't be. You know, I'm that's not to say that Democrat that Republicans don't have a an extremely better hand to play based on the gerrymanders that that already existed. Yeah, you know, uh, I would say that, though, even though uh, redistricting might not be turning out as bad as, as some had feared for Democrats, uh, simply because they already have so little margin for error, they, the House majority is already so small, just the existing gerrymanders alone uh, could could really make a difference uh, for the Republicans next year. And so, you know, even if they're not ringing out every seat in, in Texas or, or, you know, Ohio, uh, Republicans are still in a very strong position to take back the House simply because of the way the districts are drawn. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is why getting voting reform passed is so critical, uh, outlawing mm-hmm. partisan redistricting. Even Joe Manchin thinks partisan redistricting should be outlawed. He just won't eliminate the filibuster to let that happen. So, again, when we talk about all the things that are at stake in the 2022 election in the Senate, well, clearly the House, too, because we still need to control the House. But in the Senate is getting that Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema proof majority so we can get rid of the filibuster. And then we could do something about this, this uh, undemocratic, anti-democracy gerrymandering process in all the states. I mean, we do it in some states because we have to. It would be great if we could get rid of it everywhere. Stephen Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be checking in with you again if you would if you would be so kind as to join us in a couple months to get an update on where things stand as more and more states return their maps. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Gary, I think you're you're right in the sense that things could be worse. And if we can even hold the line short term, win the Senate elections, hold the House, get rid of partisan redistricting. We could even have a mid decade redistricting uh, bonanza across the country. That's, that's sort of like a best case scenario. Of course, we have a tough political climate. Joe, uh, Joe Biden's numbers aren't really helping us. 
Uh, let's, and we let's let's talk about Joe Biden's numbers real quick and where the where Republicans and Democrats are. Just real quick. Go for it. Yeah. So so I know. I mean, Joe Biden's numbers right now are low, but I just want to say that like that ha- we we have no idea where they're going to be a year from now, uh, let alone six months from now. And what Joe Biden has endured is a, a you know a sort of a cascade of negative coverage about the Delta variant spiking, even though now it seems to be starting to recede, about the Afghanistan withdrawal, and all these doomsday articles about you know it looks like his agenda has stalled, so you know he hasn't gotten anything since since March, and the uh, American rescue plan, the pandemic relief, you know, so, so I think that his numbers, I don't know if they'll ever bump back to where they were, where he was like 55%, you know, positive 38% back in March. It was something like that. You know, he was like mid fifties and 38% disapproval. That was pretty stunning actually, that, that that's where they were. I don't know if they'll ever get back to that i mean it you know if if the economy started moving inflation came down just dropped to a rock you know and then it, like you you never know but but i don't think they're gonna be i think they're artificially deflated gosh knock on wood i think at the moment they're artificially deflated and i just want to add that i know you're watching joe, you, biden, you're, joe biden's poll numbers to be clear are artificially deflated Yes, okay. yes. His approval rating is artificially deflated, I think, at the moment. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, look, if he if they manage to get through Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure deal, right? If they manage to get those through, all of a sudden it's gonna be Joe Biden amazing, right? You know, so then then, then like there, there's gonna be a slew of stories about that. Now I don't know exactly what the, <laughs> what what Republicans are gonna gin up over the next year. God only knows what they're gonna do. Honduran caravan, another caravan. But, but just remember that that if you watch Senate Republicans right now, they are dying a slow death. They are loving the fact that Joe Biden's approval ratings are low. And in the meantime, he, Donald Trump is dominating their party and has just solidified basically Herschel Walker, who has a history and a self-admitted history of murderous, you know, uh, thoughts ideations as long as well as as well as you know it, it admitted mental illness as well as a protective restraining order being issued against him because his 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 wife his ex-wife um you know separated from him divorced him and then had to get a protective order against him because she he threatened her life in in very um you know grim language according to her i should say allegedly but the protective order happened right so this is this is the guy that that is now senate republicans their primary person in georgia to take on Raphael Warnock, Senator Raphael Warnock. And that is, I mean, a month ago, Senate Republicans were trying to kill that candidacy. They were working hard to do it. They failed. And now John Thune yesterday, who's the Senate number two, went ahead and endorsed. I mean, he basically surrendered. He gave up, you know, it's like, okay, fine. We're, we're, I'm endorsing Herschel Walker. So, you know, Republicans are sitting Similar situation. Going, yeah, similar situation yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, right. Again, a, another wife abuser, uh, at least in the exactly. in the, in the uh, divorce documents. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's the Republican Party, the Republican Party, and you're absolutely right that in a in a normal year, 
in a normal conventional political year, I think Democrats would be headed towards trouble next year. This is not a normal conventional year because Donald Trump is still the head of the party. It's still he, he's going to make himself center stage. So it won't be as clear as a as a uh, um, referendum on Joe Biden. It'll be, you know, again, it'll be uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And Donald Trump gets our base out. I'm not sure. We still don't know, Carrie. We don't know. We still don't know, we if, don't know. if Donald Trump can get his base out without being on the ballot. We just had the California recall where the percentage of uh, that, that Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom got was exactly the same that he got when he ran for governor. So dr- there was no Democratic drop off. We do have a big test next week in Virginia. We're going to go see if, if Democrats turn out next week at the same numbers. I think that looks good for us next year. If our turnout is low, and God forbid if we lose, then that would be a major, major warning sign. So Virginia actually matters. Our ability to get our vote out actually matters. So we have all this. Uh, we are out of time, so we will just have to keep talking about this because it's a theme in our conversations uh, and on the show. So this is not going anywhere. We'll be talking about this for the next month, all the way probably through next November. So. Uh, there's no need for us to drop it. We'll just keep talking about it uh, at, in our next episode. So, Carrie, thank you so much for being such an amazing co-host. It's always such a pleasure to sit next to you and talk to these amazing guests. Uh, thanks to Daily Coast senior writer Joan McCarter. Um, you know, she came on to talk about the House. No, she came on to talk about the Senate. And we had uh, Daily Coast elections writer Stephen Wolf talk about the House and the gerrymandering process. I hope everybody's a little smarter I know I'm always a little smarter when I hear them talk because they know their material so well and they're so informative. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. And thank you, the viewer and listener, for joining us every week. Please like, subscribe, do whatever you need to do in your podcast platform or on YouTube or on Facebook Live. Uh, spread the word. Let people know you can keep up with us at uh, on Twitter at Daily Coast. And, uh, or you can go to dailycoast.com proper to catch up on all the latest progressive news. Thank you so much. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.